Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Is that people for centuries have been doing as a meaningful way of connecting with the presence of God. And uh, throughout this holiday season, we're going to do that. We're going to actually do an ancient practice that's been around since the 8th century, surrounding Christmas. And for each of the candles this season, we're going to talk about one of the messianic titles that the Old Testament gave to Jesus. And this week's title that we're looking at comes out of Isaiah 11. In verses 1 and 10, and it talks about Jesus being from the root of Jesse, from the lineage of Jesse, and it says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse, which is the messianic title for Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. And at first, when you look at this title and this prophecy, it's really kind of an odd one. Why would they talk about Jesse? Why wouldn't they talk about King David? I mean, King David was the most famous king. He was the biggest guy. But why would they talk about Jesse, the very little known about father of King David? And it's for this reason, at least one of the reasons, is the fact that the prophecy is saying that Jesus will be the new and better David. He will be the ruler who will rule all the nations, not just for a lifetime, but forever. He's going to bring that kind of authority. And there's also another really interesting thing in here, which are the artists that we borrowed the uh, information from by permission uh, on stage captures so well. In this passage, there's this imagery of not just a child coming, but a child coming and there being life out of death. Isaiah is using this imagery of this dead stump out of which a shoot of life comes. And the promise is that Jesus, through his death, brings that shoot of life, and he brings the hope to each and every one of us in the holiday season and all the time of the fact that he can take those dead areas of our life where we feel like we have no hope, the things that we feel like have been cut off, the dreams that have been lost that we feel like for him are from him, and he can bring life back to that. So let's just celebrate as we sing about... Uh, God being with us, which is the, which is the meaning of Advent, celebrating God being with us. We're going to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So let's just worship him for that life out of death for all areas of our life. Lord, thank you for your presence being with us. Thank you that you are with us right now. You're with us always. And Lord, I pray that your presence would become uh, known to us. That you would speak to each one of our hearts and that you would lead us to the thoughts that you want us to have today to experience the life and the joy you want to bring. In Jesus' name, amen. Great to see you this morning. God is with us. The Children's Storybook Bible, which I love and which if you've been around for a while, you've heard us recommend a couple times. It's a great reading for us as adults as well. And starts this way. It says, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. And it's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. And it's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. And it's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. 
Now, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this one story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. That's such a great summary of the gospel and of the Christmas season. Today, as we look at the Bible and look at some passages in the Bible, we're going to look at one of the most significant internal struggles that I think every one of us faces in life when we think about the problems we face, when we think about our, our personal failures and the problems, when we think about the dynamics and issues we struggle in in relationships, or when we think about politics and our nation and our culture. We struggle with the hope that real lasting change, significant lasting change will happen. We wonder whether God will show up and break through the problems in a meaningful, lasting way. I mean, isn't it true when we look at the problems we face on a regular basis, the things that we worry about on a day-to-day basis, about family, about our job, about community, about wondering whether the economy can ever be fixed and politics will ever be functional, and, and the things we struggle with and think about every day, We question and wonder, will God, can God actually show up in those circumstances and make a significant change and difference? We think it's so unexpected in so many ways. Our Advent candle reflection and our Christmas song all point to the idea of God being with us. What would it have been like to hear that prophecy of God becoming a man and coming to save you and then wait for hundreds of years to see it happen? It would have been a struggle, wouldn't it? And I mean, we in our daily life, we keep struggling with keeping hope alive for change in our own circumstances, whether it's frustration in our job and wanting a better job and feeling trapped or whether, or whether it's in our marriage and our marriage is good, but there's just these constant struggles that we just constantly loop back to the same things over and over again, whether it's your own personal failures or whether it's a combination of issues that go on. We just loop back to these issues and we just wonder, can it ever change? Can I ever expect God to change me or change my spouse? Or maybe some of you ran ran into this in the holiday season, being around family. You ran into people, you go, well, uncle, will he ever change? I mean, will it ever get any better? I was talking not too long ago with a friend who was struggling with the idea of what's going on with his aging parents. And, you know, we hope that our aging parents will always get healthier, but sometimes, in this instance, he was struggling with it and being sad, being disappointed, even having it be painful and frustrating at times that instead of getting softer, his aging parents were becoming more stuck, more pronounced in the issues they had dealt with all their life, becoming more controlling, more negative, more obsessive instead of less. And and we struggle in circumstances like that, whether it's with our parents or with our job or with our own personal issues of not expecting, wondering whether God can show up and bring something good out of that situation. We feel stuck. We feel like it's unchangeable and we don't expect it to change. And And truth be told, the reality is some of those things may not ever change, right? We understand that. But when we start thinking about that side of it so much, we so easily lose 
and tank our faith and our trust in God's promises and his ability to show up and do miracles. How do we learn to see things from God's perspective? Be realistic about him, but understand to see see things from God's perspective and still have the expectation that he's with us, that he's going to show up, that he's going to help us. I don't know where you're at today and all that. Maybe some of you, you're on a high because things are going great and you go, God's showing up, it's really wonderful. So maybe this isn't that big of an issue. Some of you may be here and and you're going, well, I I really believe God's going to be good, but I have to admit, uh, I'm not sure I have quite as much hope as I used to have. That fan of flame of hope isn't burning quite as bright. And and some of you, honestly, probably are sitting at a place where you're going, I want to believe. I really want to believe. But, boy, it feels like a coal that's about to go out. And it feels like to even want to have hope in this area again and expect God to show up and have changes is going to lead me to a place of frustration and disappointment. I don't even know if I want to breathe on that coal to bring that fire out more. It's tough. And yet the Advent story, the whole theme of Christmas, is that God is inviting us to expect the unexpected. That God is inviting us to believe that he's going to break into our reality and we can expect and even anticipate God's presence. And I want to just try to gently and thoughtfully fan that flame of hope for each one of us today as we talk about what we're titling the message as Christmas B.C. Now, some of you are going, what do you mean, Ross? You mean Christmas before Christ? I mean, that's, isn't that the whole point of B.C.A.D.? You know, did that really happen? And Well, yes, Christmas did exist before Christ came. It existed in the mind and the plan of God, and it shows up in the Old Testament over and over again as God speaks through prophets 600 to a couple thousand years before Christ, details about who the Messiah is going to be that Jesus fulfills. And it gives us the confidence, and we start to look at that and really ponder the evidence and the reality of it, it it can fan into flame the fact that he has shown up. He is going to show up today and he will show up tomorrow. Now, to introduce this idea further, um, uh, just because, you know, SNL made this really popular again this last week. Anybody see the the Schoolhouse Rock skit? Who, who grew up watching cartoons and all the breaks had Schoolhouse Rock? And, and I'm sorry, no matter what you think about the issue, that was really clever. And it went viral on the Internet. Uh, and so we're going to take a Schoolhouse Rock look at Old Testament prophecy and what Jesus fulfilled. So enjoy. How do you know what's true is really true? That's where the evidence comes in. Christ's offer to turn you into a new person is real if his claim to be God is true. So let's consider the evidence of eight prophecies proving his claim is true. Do you know what the probability factor is of only eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus? No. A one in ten to the seventeenth power. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Huh? That's one in ten to this many times. I don't get it. If you were to take ten to the seventeenth power Girl Scout thin mint cookies. How many? That's over a quintillion cookies. And spread them across the state of Texas. Yeehaw! They would cover every inch of the state and form a pile of Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies two feet deep. That's a lot of Thin Mints. A whole lot of Thin Mints. 
Now take one more thing and lick all the chocolate off, toss it into that pile, and stir the whole thing up. Blindfold yourself, walk the entire state from Amarillo to Laredo, stopping just once to stoop down and pick a single blind thin mint cookie. Got it. Take off the blindfold. Ah, nice. The chances of you picking the chocolateless cookie is the same as the chance that one person could have fulfilled just eight prophecies about Jesus in one lifetime. That's crazy. It's unthinkable. But Jesus Christ did not fulfill eight prophecies in one lifetime. Whoa. He fulfilled over 300. 300, girl! Whoa. And 29 of them in just one day. The prophecies are historically documented. The facts that actually happened to Jesus are historically documented. There's only one thing left to do. I know. For me to weigh the evidence. It's all part of the evidence. Because if it is true that he is the Son of God, what he offers you, a new life in him, is real. Now I know it's real, whether I believed it or not. It's all part of the evidence. I wish I had a voice like that. And wouldn't it be fun? Anybody want to volunteer for backup singers? We can just keep that going the rest of the service. That'd be, that'd be great. You know, it's really amazing when you look at the logic, the mathematical logic of Jesus as portrayed in the scriptures of the prophecies given hundreds and thousands of years before his birth that he fulfilled. It is really, really hard not to intellectually assent to believing that not only is the Bible the inspired word of God and not just man's words, but it's also true that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the Messiah, that he's God. And now, I understand, I can still hear some objections in this, so let's, let's talk about those because there's a couple objections and especially one that I think is really valid. I mean, even in preparing for the message this last week, I have to say I had this objection going through my mind as I was reading the prophecies Jesus fulfilled, and that is simply this, that some of the prophecies we would argue are well-known enough in Jesus' time. They would have been well-known by everybody in Jesus' time, and they are generic enough that Jesus could have controlled the fulfillment of them, right? And so we read through a lot of those prophecies, and we go, well, yeah, I mean, so he could have done that, and there's no problem that he could have done that, so he can't really count that. And we try to rule some of that stuff out. And then, then, then there's a second argument I hear a lot of times by people struggling with this, that is goes like this. It basically says so many of the prophecies were kind of random and maybe even uh, selecting of large population groups that it would have been, you know, people, a lot of people could have claimed having been that or it would have been easy to do that, right? And we discount the math of probability in this. But the reality is the same math that's behind these predictions, behind this schoolhouse rockish video is the exact same kind of math that we use every single day of our life. Insurance companies use it all the time. And insurance actuarials, they use the same kind of general random stuff that when you put all of it together paints a reliable picture. Some of it could be random. Some of it could easily be fulfilled by many people. But when you put it all together, it predicts success. We use it in our marketing campaigns all the time, this kind of same general mathematical stuff. And we create probabilities for the success of those campaigns. We use it in even decisions down to parenting. I mean, we use this all the time. See, to dismiss the credibility of 
that kind of mathematical probability proving the reliability of Jesus in the scriptures is like saying 800 years ago, several different people over several centuries wrote things down and they survived to today, which is in itself a miracle, right? Because how many ancient documents 800 years survived till today in a reliable way? And then in their writing, they talked about one person and they talked about that person as having been born in New Albany, Ohio. And not only born in New Albany, Ohio, but born to a certain person, a certain kind of parent in New Albany, Ohio. And then they went on to say that this person would leave New Albany, Ohio and go to Cuba and live for a number of years and then come back returning to live in Alexandria, Ohio, a little town just a few miles down the road from here, even smaller than New Albany. And that later, this person would become a great spiritual leader. And one day they would ride into the downtown Columbus unplanned on a donkey that had never been ridden. And if you've been around donkeys, you know how improbable and what a miraculous thing that is. Uh, on the day of Red, White, and Boom, and thousands of people would gather around and cheer them, cheer this guy on, saying he's the king of kings. And then that same person would be falsely accused by the religious leaders of Columbus and they would convince the judges and police of Columbus to arrest and falsely condemn this person to death. And then on top of that, they would describe the fact that that arrest would be precipitated by the betrayal of a friend who would betray him for 30 pieces of silver, not, not 20, not 100, not a thousand, not gold, not copper, but 30 pieces of silver. And oh, by the way, that spiritual leader wouldn't just be anyone. They would be a descendant of a particular family. And that doesn't even take into the account that the prophets say they're going to be a descendant of a particular family, but they're not just going to be born in Ohio where there's like a bazillion smiths. They're not even going to be born in Columbus where there's a lot of Smiths. They're going to be born in tiny little New Albany before Les Wexner showed up. Right? And then they're going to describe his death in a way that says, that describes a form of death that wasn't even present and known when they wrote those predictions down in prophecy form. And they're going to describe the wounds that he received from that form of death, which they didn't know perfectly. You see, even if you dismiss some of the prophecies that Jesus could control, all of them put together, happening in one person's life, are absolutely astounding. And it creates Texas filled with two feet thick of Girl Scout Thin Mints cookies with only one of them sucked clean of the chocolate. And everybody who knows, has a lot of Texas friends, like I've got a lot of Texas friends, knows that that is impossible they're going to suck a whole lot more clean. I mean, that's just what Texans do. They lick the chocolate clean. Right? Here are some of the prophecies of the Old Testament just about Jesus' birth and his early childhood that are fulfilled. The Old Testament prophesies in Malachi that he will have a forerunner, a herald, who will be on the order of one of the greatest people ever in Israel's history to live, one of the most celebrated leaders. He'll be on the order of Elijah. He'll be that popular, and he will be a forerunner only to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, you know how hard it is to become famous. 
Think about how hard it is for two people to become famous who are going to be connected somehow like that in purpose. And remember, he's not riding to fame the coattails of Jesus. He's becoming famous in his own right across the entire nation before Jesus is ever well known. And he's going to obey God and believe that his purpose is not to be famous, but to prepare only the way for somebody else. How many times have we seen somebody famous do that in life? There's also a prophecy that says he'll come from the tribe of Judah and that he will rule and his rule will never end. There's a prophecy that says he'll be born in the little town of Bethlehem. There's a prophecy that says he'll be born of a virgin. And the New Testament says that's exactly what happened. Now, I know a lot of people, especially today, struggle with the idea of the virgin birth and, and think, oh, that's just really mythology and hard to understand. Well, let me, let me ask you two questions that I think you need to really seriously consider before you make that a solid conclusion you hold. The first question is this. Is it reasonable... Is it intellectually sound to think the virgin birth is something that the God who created the entire universe could not do? Let me ask that a different way, that same question. Isn't it intellectually consistent? Isn't it even reasonable to believe that the God who created the universe, who created humankind from scratch in the first place, could easily accomplish this miracle? I mean, after all, Who are we giving the name God to? And who are we worshiping, right? Further, the Bible talks very clearly in both the Old and the New Testament that the Messiah will be not just a man, but will be divine. He will be God incarnate in the flesh. And so the second question is, how would you expect the divine to become incarnate flesh if not in the way described? Is it not reasonable to consider that the virgin birth of Christ is a perfectly reasonable way for God to become the incarnate God-man living among us? It's logical to think that even. See, the birth and the early infancy story of Jesus also uh, prophesies that there will be a great uh, slaughtering of children in Bethlehem. And actually, it's really interesting. Matthew 2 says, connects an event that happened when Jesus fled to Egypt and Herod coming down and killing people for fear of the king being born there as that fulfillment of that prophecy. And that's also noted in secular history. Hosea also says that the Messiah will one day flee to Egypt and come back, fulfilled in Matthew 2. Six prophecies fulfilled just in the birth and early infancy of Jesus. And that doesn't count all the other prophecies about defining his lineage and there's other things about his birth that we aren't including here. And don't forget the Schoolhouse Rock video about the 26 prophecies that were fulfilled in one day in Jesus' death. So, question, how does this make a difference for us today? How does it impact the way we live today? Let me suggest three ways. First, if, if this whole Texas filled with thin mints and only picking the one out is true, and the probabilities show that, then we can trust that the Bible is the inspired, reliable Word of God. See, one of the major interesting things about the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the New Testament is all about showing the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And the hallmark, one of the hallmark indicators of the biblical text is that of being more than just words of men and being something divine, something we can trust, is the fulfillment of prophecies. It gets us to the point where the, where the logic to argue that it can't be divine is is 
is really hard to argue. I mean, especially when you factor in the over 300 prophecies that Jesus did indeed fulfill that were given in the Old Testament, he fulfilled in his lifetime. I mean, you think about that, that's going to have the whole earth filled two feet thick in thin mint cookies. Wouldn't that be a delight? And the God who can do that, that kind of probability, is it, is it even reasonable to think that God cannot ensure the words he wants to communicate to us will be reliably written down and translated and preserved for us? I don't think so. Yet still, it's really common for us to distrust the Bible, mainly because we don't understand it. But wouldn't we think, don't we think that the Bible should be a little bit challenging for us to understand if it's God's words and it's higher thinking than us? I mean, that's, you know, God is so gracious and so thoughtful about giving us every reason on earth to believe and trust him. Scripture is an amazing thing. Looking at how God fulfills so much, predicts so much, and does it so accurately, it's absolutely amazing. The Bible is the treasure of wisdom and understanding and knowledge that is far more reliable than any other source we can look at. And the question for us, just on a practical level, is are we allowing ourselves to tap into that treasure on a regular basis? Are we allowing the the God who is with us, who we celebrate through Advent, to speak to us through being in his word on a regular basis. Second point that I think is practical that we can take home today. Since God is able to pull one thin mint that's sucked off out of the whole earth, we can be certain Jesus will one day return a second time as well to finish setting all things right. right? See, our struggle with our hope, our difficulty in facing things and aging and sickness and wars and natural disasters and the genetic imperfections and, and death and the relational things all leads us to a question mark about the certainty of God's love and the certainty of God's plan. Will things one day be set right? I mean, will we someday be freed from the pain of our own sin and the, sin of the pain of other sins around us? Will we someday truly find deep lasting peace. And see, when we experience a loss of a relationship or when we lose people to death, that stuff goes against our hope and challenges our hope that Jesus is really about being good and about coming back and setting things right. And see, in our limited, limited human understanding, it's really easy for us to argue, if Jesus really was God and wanted to save us, then why did he wait so long to come in the first place? Right? Fair question. Or if Jesus is really God and wanted to save us, why, when he did come, did he not just set everything right all at once instead of leaving billions of people over a couple of millennium to still wrestle with a fallen world with sin and difficulty in it? But the certainty with which God predicted through his prophets the first coming gives us a certainty of hope that the promise of Jesus coming again is sure. And that provides an anchor for our faith in the midst of all of these questions. Third, this hope affects us all right now, you and I, right where we're at. In this moment, in the moments we'll experience this afternoon, in the moments we're going to experience a year from now, in the moments we're going to experience 10 years from now, we can be certain that God's good plan for our lives is sure. And that's what God is inviting us to today, this kind of faith. As we do the work of preparing our hearts in worship 
for Jesus to be near us with his spirit. To trust that he can pull off what he did in Jesus gives us the confidence that he's going to take care of today. And he's going to take care of tomorrow. Why? Because God is God and he's with us now and in every now we will ever face. And it invites us to a question, several questions. What, what's been causing fear or anxiety for you lately? What's been causing fear or anxiety? What do you struggle with that you don't see other people struggling with it, but when you do it, when you face that same thing, you just, you just want to avoid it. It creates anxiety. It creates pain. It creates tension. You just want to, you don't even want to do it. You want to stay away from it. What are the areas of dis-ease in your life that you're facing now that causes you to rage inside sometimes and struggle with finding a sense of contentment and peace? For me, the most beautiful aspect of the Christmas story is not just that God comes near to us, as beautiful as that is. It's not just that he pursues us even when we're not looking for it. It's not just that he invites us into relationship with him even when we're rebelling against him with a kindness and a patience that's amazing. All that stuff is absolutely amazing. But the thing that's most beautiful for me about Christmas is that God comes to us as a baby. I mean, think about it. You would think that he would come as a parent, right? And we as the child... I mean, that's what makes sense, right? But God often comes to us in ways that we do not expect, in the unexpected. And as I was pondering this, I was thinking back to when my kids were infants. And just thinking about those moments, there's nothing as soft and as touchable and as beautiful as holding a baby. I mean, uh, as a parent, there's no other feeling in the world that can match having your child joyfully at peace in your arms, which I know it doesn't happen all the time. Right? But it does happen enough. Joyfully at peace in your arms, just playing with your face or, or nestling up with against you with that soft head. I mean, there's nothing as soft as a baby's head. And just nestling in your, in your neck and your cheek. And, and there's something emotional, something of an experience that happens for us in those moments, isn't there? Where everything goes away. It's almost this powerfully reorienting experience, this beauty, this peace, that everything is right and good and beautiful in the world in those moments. And what is it about that? I mean, it's hard to explain. It's one of those experiences that goes beyond words, but a lot of us have had it. If you've had your own kid and and you've held them at night when they're going to sleep, you've had that moment where it just reorients your world and brings this peace to you, or if you've held your niece or your nephew or your friend's child, you've had those moments. You see, Christmas is not just about God coming to us, to us in an abstract way, but in a touchable way, in a way that reorients our emotions, that calms our anxieties, that removes our fears, that sets the world right. Returning to our verses in Isaiah 11 that we started out with in the Advent Reflection today. The verses surrounding what we read already describe who God is to us, and it paints this amazing picture of the promise of God for us, 
for others and for creation and what he's really leading us to. And in, most, in the most picturesque ways that are so especially appropriate for our world today where we've got wars and terrorists and Ebola and dis- natural disasters and we're reminded of all the, the history and the problems that the Ferguson riots bring out and, and, and even just our own concern in this season or in all of life for our own children's well-being. I want to invite you as I read this, and I'm going to pray it over us as well as I'm kind of interspersed reading it in prayer, to just picture what's being read. Now, if you're an auditory person, then you can probably close your, close your eyes and picture it that way. If you're not, you may want to look at the screens because it may help you to focus, whichever is most helpful for you. But let me read it and just let yourself begin to experience God coming to you even as we read this picture of his promise to us. Again, it starts in verse 1. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And Lord, we're so grateful that you came and you died and you rose again to give life and that that hope comes to us even in the stumps of our own life in the areas where we feel dry, where we feel like fruitfulness is hopeless. That you promise that you can come to us right there and you're coming even right now to us to bring life and to breathe hope. It goes on describing Jesus saying, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And Lord, we're so grateful that you have all the wisdom, all the power, all the understanding. And Lord, even more so, we're grateful that you give us that same wisdom. You give us that same counsel. You come to us by your Holy Spirit and you give us everything we need in terms of understanding that we can trust you for that. It goes on and says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy and oh, the compassion he has for our struggles. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And Lord, we're grateful that you are a just God, that you are fair, and that you are also merciful with great compassion and patient and forgiving. We're so grateful to serve you and to honor you with that. And then he goes on very clear in a picture that's just just beautiful. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw with the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. And that's the promise of peace that God is leading every single one of us to. Lord, we're grateful that you give us seeds, shoots of that peace out of the dryness of our lives now. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to come to us and expand that life of peace now. And we're grateful that you promise to one day lead us to a world like that where there will be decisive change Deep, good, perfect change. 
And it goes on, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea, and in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. And Lord, we're so grateful that you've adopted us as your sons and daughters and that we get to be part of that good news of spreading your peace, your kindness, your graciousness to all peoples near and far. We are so grateful that you reached out to us and that we now get to be part of being that banner of that good news for everyone to see. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and continue to speak to us and give us peace now. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. We're going to transitions and continue worship, and we're going to do it in this way. I want you to take a moment. What are the thoughts that have been coming to mind as I've asked any of these questions or as I've read? Has it been a challenge that you've resisted stepping across a boundary and you are really kind of convinced and maybe, maybe the evidence helps get you to the place where you want to say, no, I'm all in. I'm going to trust the Bible. I'm going to trust that Jesus is God. I'm going to surrender my life to him. Or did God speak to you about an anxiety or a fear that's been coming around lately and he wants to touch? I want you to continue as we worship to just give those things to him and allow the Holy Spirit to come and be with you. It's his presence with us, just like the presence of holding a baby, that actually that experience changes us on the inside. I also want to invite us to a response to the last part, which is the fact that we're being invited to bring that kind of peace to everyone around us. That the promise is that the Holy Spirit is in you to make that difference in other people's lives. And we're going to continue our tradition that we've done now for, this will be our third year, where during worship, uh, I'm going to invite you to come up and write the names of your five. We encourage you, if you're part of Quest, to have five people you're praying for and asking God to allow you to have an impact in their lives. And those five people, we recommend that they be close enough that you have regular contact with them and, and, and define them this way. They are people who are not followers of Jesus, or they are people who have walked away from the church and are struggling in their faith that you want to see God bring to strong faith. And so we're going to decorate our tree, and every Sunday when we come in, we're going to be reminded to pray for our five and believe that God is with us, and through you, through, uh, through, my, through me, through you, through your prayers, through your even just saying how God's been good in your life, that it's going to be more than just you that the Holy Spirit is going to be there to bring change to your friends' lives. So part of our worship today is going to be interacting with where God's coming to us, but part of it's going to be interacting with how God wants to use us with our five. So anytime during worship, come up and grab an ornament and put your five on it and put it on the tree and just continue to worship. God's here. I don't know if you're sensing him. God is here to meet you where you are for his Holy Spirit to become real to you. Can we just just open your hands? And Lord, we bless what you're doing right now. Just name to him where you need him to come to you. Whether it's an anxiety or fear, just name to him right now and say, Holy Spirit, come. Come and meet me. Whether it's sickness, come and heal. Whether it's hope for a relationship, 
Lord, show the way. Come, Holy Spirit. Pour out your insight. Pour out your understanding. Pour out your hope on us. Spirit, come and take that tension that you're feeling. Just remove it. Paul actually takes us back in Romans to this very passage again that we talked about. You may be tired of hearing it, but let's look at Romans 15. He says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, the messianic title for Jesus, will spring up One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. In him, those who are far off, those who are hardened, those who we think are hopeless to be reached, hopelessly lost, they will put their hope in him because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Therefore, I want you to receive this blessing he gives to the Roman Christians. Just receive it. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope. Overflow on who? Overflow on your five. Overflow with hope on everybody you meet. Overflow with the goodness of God and the power of God and expecting him to work through you in unexpected ways. Why? Paul finishes it say, overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that drawing sense and that power to do the unexpected lives in you. Expect it. Live in hope. God bless. Have a great week. If you uh, would like prayer, grab me, grab one of the elders, uh, or grab a friend. And have a fantastic week being hope givers by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.